Well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you take them out to Psalm 3. We're going to read a passage from Psalm 73 and then read a passage from Colossians chapter 2 in just a moment. So you might want to go to both places. I'm honored to um, preach this morning, but I got to be honest, it was just a difficult one for me. Just, Pastor Lawrence asked me if I'd share just a little bit of something that I've been going through lately, and I want to share that with you. Been kind of getting there and, and fighting with it, but I just think the Lord's going to do something unique this morning. So, hope you'll stay with me. Um, yeah, let's just start with reading our text and diving in with prayer. How we do that? Psalms 73, we're going to read verses 16 and 17, and then verse 23. All right, 16 says, uh, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. It was wearisome until I went in to God's presence. I want to jump to verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now notice this verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray in the next few moments you would help us communicate with clarity. Lord, that we are bombarded with the opinions of men, so I pray that you would help me keep my opinions out of it. We, we need and long to hear from you. Lord, I just pray for what you're going to stir up this morning. I, I thank you that you can handle and that you will sort it out. Lord, I just pause and I take a moment to pray for our children. I pray that you would give them a heart to know you, to walk in your ways. I bless those who are serving them and ministering to them now. I bless our graduates, Lord. May they cooperate with you to creatively and purposefully live in such a way that brings creative solutions to the world. And may you bring your life to the world through them. Lord, in here I just pray that the words of my heart, of mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. And I thank you for this in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an interesting um, scene in uh, C.S. Lewis's second book uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, when Lucy finally sees Aslan again for the second time, or for the, uh, after being gone a while. And when Lucy sees Aslan, she says, Aslan, you, you're bigger. And Aslan replies, this is because you are older, little one. And Lucy asks, not because you're older? Aslan says, I am not. But every year that you grow, you'll find me bigger. I just find Christian growth is a lot like that. The more we grow, the bigger Jesus gets, not the smaller. Am I the only one that had the idea that as I grew up spiritually, as I grew more mature spiritually, I would need less grace? Anybody? Like this, the older and better I got at this thing called life and the spiritual life, the less I'll need forgiveness and the less I'll need grace and the less I'll need to depend on Jesus. Right? Y'all looking at me so spiritual. Maybe you never had that problem. But I, I recently, in, around the 1st of April, began to experience something that was just difficult for me. In fact, I, I just went in and told Pastor Lawrence, kind of confessed it to him. Hey, this is where I am. I think you should know. Um, and... I just got alone with God. I was there, a cup of coffee and the Bible and the journal and all the rest. And I was sitting there and I just all of a sudden had this thing in me that just said, Lord, 
I don't want to be here. Have you ever just went to spend time with Jesus and went, I just don't want to be here? Maybe you never have. Again, you just look like you have your life together. So I'm just going to share all the brokenness in my own soul. And uh, if you guys would email me all your brokenness, that would really help me out. <laughs> Pastor Dude at destinyokc.com. <laughs> Send them my way. <laughs> um, I just realized I didn't, I didn't, want, I didn't want to be here. And I'm, I know myself enough now that normally when that happens, there's, I've probably have lived life without any margin. I'm probably exhausted. My follow-up thought was, okay, if I don't want to be here, what is it I want to be doing? And it's like, you know, 6.30 in the morning, and my first thought is like, I just want to watch Netflix. I know, real spiritual, right? But I, I knew enough to know, all right, Jesus, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to lean into this. So Jesus, let's talk about why I don't want to be here. And, uh, you know, I, I've learned that our prayer life tends to suffer when we don't pray about things that matter to us. When we just try to pray the things we think God wants to talk about instead of the things that are actually going on inside of us. And I just want you to know there's nothing like in that prayer in that moment that just changed me. I just sat there with him. And I just showed up the next day and I sat there with him and said, I, I still don't want to be here, but I don't understand that. I desire to desire to be here. But right now, I don't desire to be here. And I need you to meet me here. I need you to help convince me, uh, that which is at the root word of con uh, convict. I need you to convince me again. I need you to encounter me again, remind me again, draw me to you again. And it was a process of all kinds of things begin to happen. And, and it really began to put in perspective some things I've been thinking. So I just want to kind of talk about that a little bit as we walk through today. I believe Christian growth is more about growing deeper in what we already know to be true than it is about growing into a bunch of new truths. It's more as if we've come to a deeper understanding and a deeper confidence in the things that we first believed when we even became Christians. That's why Colossians, I read Colossians 2, 6, just as you received Jesus Christ, so walk in him. The walk is similar to how you first got in. So I believe Christian growth, again, is growth in Christ. It's not self-improvement. We do not grow to be more independent. We grow to be more interdependent. That there's something about growing in Christ that's also healing journey. It's a journey of our inner being and spirit being formed into the character of Christ. And it requires us to go into a deeper, into truth deeper. And that can be ugly sometimes. We grow deeper in the reality of our sinfulness. It's Paul at the end of his life that says he's the chief among sinners, not the start of his life. We grow deeper into the reality of our brokenness, right? We go deeper. Like I, Anybody else think, I, you know, you thought you were broken at young age, and then you repented, and now you're like, okay, fine. Then you have like a whole other degree of realization how broken you are, and you're like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. We grow deeper into our brokenness. We grow deeper into our understanding of that. We grow deeper into our understanding of God's love. We grow deeper into our understanding of forgiveness. We grow deeper in our experiences of Christ. In other words, like Lucy and Aslan, the more we grow in Christ, the bigger he gets. But I want to talk about something that I tend to think may hinder our growth. Some, we've been talking about the algorithms and kind of these unnoticeable forces that kind of help adjust and uh, run our lives. And I just want to talk about one that we tend to not notice that we're doing. I want to talk about how despair is necessary to grow. Despair is necessary to grow because, first of all, despair brings us to honesty. Let me give you some things. Psalm, the Psalms tell us that God is close to those whose hearts are breaking and who feel crushed by life. Proverbs tells us that it's the low and the destitute that God will show favor to. In Isaiah, you only find God in two places, high and exalted in the heavens and down and low with those who are void of self-confidence and emptied of themselves. Jesus tells us, unless a grain falls into the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. In other words, God is for our joy, but he has to send us down into this deep 
honesty, even despair, in order to bring us through that, that we might see something. He wants us to come to terms with how really sick we are so that we can come to him and be really healed. So fallen humanity, it's weird. We must enter into joy through despair. And it seems counterintuitive. And I believe one of the reasons why those in Christ may not be growing in Christ is they have drifted from the healthy practice of self-despair. In other words, we have tried to avoid the despair that we need to grow. Now just to be overview again, we were created in the glory of God. We were created in God's image, intended for God's glory. For all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. Now I know you read that and think, oh no, look, we've all sinned. But first stop and just think what you were aimed at. (laughs) You were aimed at glory of God. Does that make sense? God created you, intended, intending you to di- put on display his glory, and we've fallen short of doing that. But that's what his, uh, his intention was. That was the, the divine intent from the beginning, that we would put on display the glory of God. And we all know that we've sinned and man's fallen, but it's, it's worse than that. We are ruined. We're not just sick. Uh, we're not just wrong. We're sick. We're not just wounded. We're broken. And one of the problems is this, the very sickness that we have will actually keep us from seeing how sick we are. That's why the Bible calls oftentimes sinfulness as blindness. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, the great preacher, he said, we will never, uh, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We're all in very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for how good we, how good we are. And that's why it's called blindness. But I'm convinced to the degree that we ignore or minimize this sinfulness or the readiness to do evil that lies within us, the lower the ceiling is on how, how much we can grow. For example, to use a medical example, it's the condition of the illness that determines how much and the kind of Um, medicine you need. And what I'm trying to say is broken humanity is not like a headache in which we need some Tylenol. It's a cancer in which we need surgery. Now, when I don't know about you. Do do you do this? When you think when somebody's up here talking about sinfulness, do you always think about somebody way worse than you? Right? It's like nobody reads the verse about a rich man entering heaven through the eye of a needle and think, well, that's me. We always think about somebody with more money than we, us. Oh, that got quiet fast, didn't it? Sorry. But you know what I'm saying. We always want to think about somebody else. I I want to try to help us to put this in terms. But as we come to an honesty um, about how profoundly short we've fallen from the glory of God, um, really that is the first step to Christian growth. And honestly, that is what it means to humble yourself in the beginning. To humble yourself is to see yourself against the, the extraordinary beauty and goodness of God and see how short I've fallen in putting that kind of goodness on display. That's where we start. And the good news that we all uh, come to, the good news of the gospel is not that God wants to complete your otherwise good life. No, it is that he wants to kill you and resurrect you in himself. That the gospel is not an enhancing of all your good parts. It's a resurrecting of something that's not there, that has been dead. And he wants to do that as he brings us to Christ. But what you might find interesting is that all throughout the gospels, it's evident that it is those who think they are morally good, not those who think they're immoral. It's those who think they're morally good that become the greatest obstacle in in fellowship with Jesus Christ. The destitute rejected and the sinners, they're drawn to him. But it's the morally good and the religious elite that keep questioning him, doubting him, and ultimately killing him. So how do we move through despair? How might this work? Well, one is I just want you to notice, at least in my journey, and as I've tried to read to not just preach my own experience, but is this what tends to happen? I've seen it over and over again. Your desires can help you come to emptiness. It can help you come to experience your emptiness. So a desire, right? A desire is um, a longing. It's a, it's a reaching out for. A desire in itself tells you there's a void and I'm reaching out to grab something in order to fill it. That's why desire always has an aim. You don't just wake up one day and go, man, I just want a desire. 
You wake up with a desire in mind. It has an aim because it's reaching to fill something. And it assumes it has to go outside of the self to to uh, obtain the thing. So there's this longing, there's this reaching, and then we have this intention, we have a desire, but then we intend on satisfying the desire, right? And then we reach out to satisfy the desire. And even if you can satisfy the desire, what ends up happening is that satisfied desire doesn't satisfy very long. Anybody else? Really, it's more about delaying desire than it is about satisfying it, right? I know a lot of people who are seeking to satisfy themselves. I just don't meet a lot of satisfied selves. I just want to meet one person where, like, I'm really satisfied. So desire helps us get there. And it helps us get there in several ways. As, as we try to get any, like, just sitting with God lately and, 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 and realizing the things I have desired and longed for and reached for, and even though I might have obtained them, how empty they still are. See, there's this futility in pleasure that makes me hunger for God more. There's this realization that even if I get whatever it is I think I want, it won't ultimately do anything different. And that, that emptiness, that hunger, that, oh, it's almost painful, isn't it? It's that awareness that there's this thing in me that longs for something and I can't seem to satisfy it. That itself can lead me to God. But what we often do is numb it. Or distract ourselves from it. Because to sit with the realization that we long for something and that we can't find it, that emptiness is painful. And we'd rather just watch the next episode on Netflix than to sit with the pain of realizing that there's something in me that's just empty. But look, Ultimately, look, let me just put it this way. If you have a desire and you can reach out and just grab something, whatever, and satisfy the desire that quickly, it probably wasn't that deep of a desire. Do you think you can orchestrate your own satisfying, your own pleasure, orchestrate um, the meeting of your desire? Then whatever desire it was, it wasn't really that deep. The real deep desires of our life are really difficult to satisfy by ourselves. Like the deep desire to be loved. The deep desire to not only be loved, but to give love, to live in the midst of love, to be completely known and not rejected, to not have any anticipation of harm or shame, to be completely myself and not fear judgment, uh, judgment or criticism or, or trying to control or punish me. Those deep longings, you can't do that on your own. And God made you that way on purpose knowing the only thing that can satisfy that deep longing for love would be him. But we find all of the goofy things, don't we, to try to satisfy it. Oh, hang on, it's going to get worse. <laughs> but it'll get better. But hang on, we got to go worse first. I believe that one of the reasons we don't grow as Christians is because we won't befriend our emptiness. If we could just... Find the courage to sit with it for a moment. Now look at our lives, all the things we've got, money, success, reputation, relationships, all the things you thought would lead to some more deeply meaningful and satisfied lives, and yet you see it all, and yet aware that underneath it is this longing that still goes untouched. But that's painful, and it's scary. What if I get stuck there? What if I go into the despair of that, and I get stuck what if I go there and this, the, the emotions are so strong, I lose it? What if I go there and I just get in, stuck in this depression and can't get out? My point is this. I believe that as Christians, if we can find a way to befriend that emptiness, there's a different, that emptiness can become a spaciousness. What's the difference between some, a spatial room and an empty room? It's your perspective. One sees what's not there, or, which is nothing, and it's empty, so they see the emptiness. One sees the possibility of what could be there. If we embrace our emptiness, it becomes the space in which God may actually want to meet us. So what if the very despair that you're running from is the place Jesus wants to meet you? What does that look like? 
Well, embracing this despair is in a way dying before you die, right? C.S. Lewis once said, die, bef- die before you die because there's not a chance after, right? Despair is this, this element that's necessary for spiritual growth, but it's almost coming to this hopelessness. And this is what I want to point out. People think, how can despair be Christian? We're supposed to be a people of hope. But what despair does is despair helps us um, come to terms with what's really hopeless, So we can become hopeless about what will never work, so we can become hopeful about what will work. But he's got to get us hopeless about the strength of our own right arm. He's got to get us hopeless about the futility of our own actions. He's got to get us hopeless that all these things we reach for will actually satisfy the longings of our soul. He's got to bring us to an utter despair that none of this seems to work. And then he's sitting there going, that's right, son. It doesn't. But I'm here. I do. But there's that pain in that. Am I the only one? There's, there's a deep-seated emptiness there. And it can be scary. This is what Jesus actually um, criticized the church of uh, Laodicea. He said, you say that you're rich and prospered and you need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Coming to terms with honesty. And listen, it's not just getting to despair because you're not getting what you want. It's not being in despair because you didn't get the job you want. It's not being in despair because you don't have the income you want. It's not being in despair because the relationships aren't working out the way you thought they were. It's coming to despair about the futility of my own effort to ever satisfy my own longings. It's coming to the realization that I don't have enough strength. I'm not smart enough. I don't, I'm not powerful enough. I don't have enough choices. I don't have enough um, leverage. There's not enough things I can do to satisfy this deep longing of my soul. And it's in that despair. It's in that desert of hopelessness that God wants to make springs shoot up and rivers run. But I don't know about you. I'm scared of it. Anybody else? It can be terrifying. I, we will not grow deeply except by going through the painful death of being honest about our spiritual bankruptcy, seeing it and feeling our utter emptiness. And as we descend into that, there's a death there, the knowledge of the futility of our actions or our inability to even change our own hearts. Anybody else have... Well, never mind. We'll keep going. Uh, I've already confessed enough. Uh, no. Um, another way, we... Our despair is all he needs to work with. The prophet Jeremiah said to the people, all you need to do is acknowledge your guilt and God will renew you. How beautiful is that? All you need to do is acknowledge your futility. All you need to do is acknowledge your utter emptiness and God will renew you. Running from despair or distracting ourselves from it or numbing it, in a sense, pulls the brake on spiritual growth. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, once wrote, the, the soundness of a man's faith in Christ is seen by the genuineness of the self-despair from which it emerges. So we must slow down and feel the emptiness inside, the inability of ourselves to do anything beneficial to help us. It will be painful, but God will be there. And this is what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 73. Though my flesh my effort, my strength, my will, my, my wits, my skills, my knowledge, all the things I have after the flesh, my flesh and then my heart, my desire, my longing, my, my wanting, the seat of who I am, my heart and my flesh will fail me. That's despair. But God, he says, is the strength of my heart. It was in his utter despair of his flesh and his heart failing that he found when he failed, he failed upon the solid rock of God's love that didn't go anywhere. This is what Job said at the end of Job. I had heard about you in the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. But he had to go through despair to see him. When we run from facing our despair, we're running from an opportunity to encounter God. Now, despair is not an end in itself. I think I've done that enough. We've talked about despair long enough. You guys can now relax. Uh, But despair is not an end. Once we've despaired of our own capabilities to generate our own growth, now what do we do? 
Well, look, there's nothing noble about staying in despair. We just need to experience it. We need to come to an honest evaluation of who we are, our own efforts outside of Christ. But healthy despair, the kind that leads to spiritual growth, it's an intersection. It's not a highway. It's a, it's a door. It's not the road. It's, a, it's what we must enter into, but to go through it, not to stay in it. The Bible teaches us that this kind of despair will help us come to a deeper um, understanding of our union with Jesus. The way I, look, the only analogy I have, and I know it's a bad one, but hey, it's my sermon. It's almost like jumping on a trampoline. The deeper you go into the despair of our own futility and emptiness, the more it will spring us to a higher experience of who Christ is for us. And the deeper we can go, then we'll come right back up into a, a higher experience of God's uh, love and union with him. And then down we go, and then up we go, and down. And the deeper we go, the more it springs us up. So you say, what if I go there and get stuck? You'll be stuck with God. What if I go there and it's too strong? Don't worry, it won't be stronger than God. What if I go there and I annoy everyone? You probably will. But you won't annoy God. You see, my hope in going there is not that I'm enough. My hope in going there is God's enough. He can hold me when I can't hold myself. He, he's willing to love me and meet me when I don't want to be there with him. And that begins to move my heart back. This two-step movement, this down and then up, this entering into honesty and despair and back up into union with Jesus, this movement is actually what the Bible calls repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Just as you receive Jesus Christ, so walk in him. How did you receive Jesus? Through repentance and faith. Repentance is a turning from the self, and faith is a turning to Christ, and you cannot have one without the other. Repentance that does not turn to Jesus is not biblical repentance, and faith that may turn to Jesus but doesn't turn from the self is not biblical faith. Repentance and faith, this is the, the engines that move um, Christian growth. So it's like, it's like pedals on a bicycle. I, I realize I, I have this, for example, this over-desire. The Bible talks, uh, how much time do I got? Okay. <laughs> This is not in the notes, so here we go. The Bible, we call it the old King James Version, and even in most translations, they call it lusts, lust of the flesh, right? But a lot, in Greek, it's really an, it's literally over-desire. It's a desire that you have, uh, that you over-desire something to the negation of other desires that would be healthy, Right? So it over-desires. So when you over-desire something, you think it's going to satisfy something. You think it's going to meet some longing that God intended to meet. And when I see that and I acknowledge my, my guilt, the emptiness of that, the futility of that, and I repent and I push down that pedal of repentance and say, God, I see that this will not satisfy and I'm wanting it to. And I, I turn to you and I push it down. Up comes the pedal of faith. And I have confidence that Jesus will be enough for me. And as I lean into the faith that Jesus is enough for me, up comes another pedal of repentance that I see over desires that I've tried to satisfy, thinking they will satisfy my heart. And when I turn from that and push it down, up comes the pedal of faith. And faith and repentance and faith and repentance move Christian growth forward. Just as you receive Jesus Christ, so walk in him. Repentance and faith. An old saint of God once wrote this to his pupil. Do not seek repentance or faith, but seek Jesus Christ. When you have Christ, you'll have repentance or faith. Be aware of seeking an experience of repentance or seeking to have great faith. Just experience Christ and seek him. He'll sort the rest out. You know, if you're just trying to seek repentance... Anybody tried to make yourself feel bad about something you don't feel bad about? How does that really work? It's, it's just a pseudo-repentance. We don't just seek repentance because that's what I tell people. That David prayed, search my heart, O God, and find any way within me. Why? Because I know I can search my heart and find a bunch of stuff wrong. But what am I going to do about it? If I could have done something about it, I would have. That's why I need God to search my heart and point out what he wants to point out because whatever he points out, he's going to give me grace for. So just search my heart and point it out. I can go in there and I will find this deep abyss and it's probably haunted. So I'd rather you search it and tell me what we're looking for. But this despair can then lead us to hunger. This hunger leads us to seeking 
The seeking leads us back to Christ. And the Bible tells us to seek because God wants you to find. He doesn't just want you to start learning to enjoy seeking. You ask and you seek and you knock because he intends on you finding him. So what might that look like? That brings us to the this idea of union with Christ. We enter in through despair, but despair brings us to a deeper union with Christ. Now, the phrase union with Christ is actually one of the most central um, themes of the entire New Testament. Over 200 times, the Bible refers to some sort of idea of union with Christ, either in Christ or with Christ or because of Christ. Over 200 times. That's enough on the average Bible to be once every page, by the way. So, this in Christ is a very center. We're buried with Christ, we're told. We're dead with Christ. We've been resurrected in Christ. We've been seated with Christ. We are blessed because of Christ. We're justified in Christ. We're sanctified in Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. We're adopted in Christ in Romans chapter 8. We are reconciled in Christ in 1 Corinthians 5. We are washed in Christ in Ephesians chapter 2. We are liberated because we are in Christ. It's all because we've been united with Christ. There is no salvation for you or even life in the kingdom of God outside of your deep embrace of Jesus. So if God wants you to experience more of the Christian life, he's got to get that embrace and union deeper, or at least your awareness of it. Union with Jesus. There's four different ways, quickly, that people tend to think about this I'm in Christ. First way is this kind of God-then-me way. First, God saves me, but now it's really up to me to sanctify me. Like, good luck with that, right? Like, it's like saying, you, you'll never be holy enough. You'll never be righteous enough. Your righteousness is filthy rags. But now that I've forgiven you and saved you, now go try on your own. That's bondage. If I couldn't do it beforehand, I'm not going to do it alone after. That, that would be bondage. So that, that idea doesn't quite work. God then me. Then there's the God and never me, right? There's those people out there who think what that means is God does all the work. I'm just passive. I'm just a bystander. It happens to me like a sneeze. Right? Hachoo, and I'm, I'm more holy. It's like negation of the will and our participation in it. But then there's the idea where people tend to think God plus me. And this is getting closer to the truth, but still not right. This idea that God does some of the work, but I got to do some of the work. Not quite it. The New Testament reality is God in you and you in God. And there's such a depth of his spirit, his life working in you, that his life works through you. Your personality, your, your spirit, your heart, your, your desire, your body. His life in you works through you to the point where you're not sure what was God and what was you. And it works in a deep union together. First he puts me in Christ and then he puts Christ in me. And there's this depth of unity. It's like if you take a sponge and you put it in the water. Is the water in the sponge or the sponge in the water? Yes. Are you in Christ or is Christ in you? Yes. And this leads us to a deeper union. In other words, Jesus has removed me from sin and united uh, me to himself through his death. In other words, nothing then can happen to me that Christ does not experience. That's how deep the union goes. Think about this. In Acts chapter 9, a man named Saul is on the road to Damascus to, to persecute some church, and he runs into Jesus. And you remember what Jesus says to the soon-to-become apostle Paul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute whom? Me. Who was Saul persecuting? The church. But Jesus takes it personally. That union is so deep, Jesus can say, you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. That my union with Jesus, he it's not just I needed a little forgiveness. He's made me one with him, and now I get to share in his life. That means that Christ has accomplished everything that I need for life and godliness. And that's exactly what Second Peter 1.3 promises you, that in Christ you will have everything you need for life and godliness. That means Christ has conquered everything that was against me, and he's accomplished everything I need to live righteous and godly going forward. My part now is I get to participate with him while being in him. But there's no Christian life outside of being in Christ. We cling to him there. And the more mature we are to grow in Jesus, the deeper we cling, not the less we need to cling. The older we grow, the bigger he gets. Now, like for example, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, 
I'm hammering this away. I'm trying to convince you. I don't know if I'm doing a good job. But 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus. To become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus could become sin? God made him, Jesus, to become sin for us. God, do you think God can make Jesus become sin without Jesus sinning? Not a trick question. Yes. God made him who knew no sin to become sin without sinning so that we might become righteous before we had any acts of righteousness. What faith looks like is to stand before God knowing you're completely unworthy and broken and say, but God, I am here because of God. I get to stand here as the righteousness of God in Christ have not earned a thing of it. And it doesn't make me arrogant. It makes me grateful. And I stand there with him. In other words, and I know this will be a little controversial. I'd love to talk to you afterwards about it. But you can't lose through bad works what you didn't get through good works. Now, we can talk about whether or not salvation is on the hook or not. At the end of the day, it, 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 sin is no longer the issue. The issue is how we handle Jesus. What are we going to do with Jesus? And if I'm united with Jesus, the only way I, is a complete rejection of Jesus. But even then, the Bible tells us God will be faithful when we're faithless, 2 Timothy 1. So you, you square that round peg. All I'm saying is this. So what we have is a solid confidence. I believe we will have difficulty in our Christian life growing beyond the depths we've experienced his love. We'll have a very difficult time growing in our, our spiritual maturity deeper than our own experiences with God's love. This is why uh, we must learn how to grow. We, cling, we often, when we come to him, we cling to Christ there first out of our own despair. And I'm here to tell you that's okay. Paul wrote, we did talk about it in prayer this morning in Ephesians 3. He actually prays for the saints. Those are Christians, believers. He's praying for these believers that they'd, be, they'd have the spirit of God. And through the spirit of God, he would strengthen them. And in the spirit of God, they would come to know the height, the width, and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why would they know the love of Christ? So that they may be filled with the fullness of God. He's writing to Christians who have repented and believed saying I pray that you would experience even deeper how much you're loved by Christ because it's through loving Christ and knowing Christ's love for you that you'll be filled with the fullness of God you are filled with the measure of the fullness of God to the degree that you know the unsearchable richness of Christ's love so let me ask you a question how much do you know it what's been your experience of it turn from ourself, our inability to manage it, we turn to Jesus, and we find him there. We find that he's our hope. I put my hope not in my faithfulness, but his faithfulness. I put my hope not in my love for him, but his love for me. I put my hope in that he has done, every, he has um, accomplished every single thing I needed to accomplish in response to God. Now I get to participate with Jesus in obedience, out of love, in his mission in the earth. But I'm not obeying in order to get saved. I'm not obeying to get grace. I'm not obeying to get. I'm obeying because. This is the depth and richness of Christ. We turn from the self to Christ. So look, you, you don't need less grace the older you get. You actually learn to, or more mature you get, you learn to live on grace more. Dallas Willard said, the greatest of saints among us are not those who needed less grace, but those who learned to consume the most grace. Breathing became an act of taking in God's grace and exhaling God's grace. So then we need to experience as we enter into that embrace, I mean, enter into union with Christ and we receive it, we believe it, we, we bring it to mind, we begin to experience God's love. And I'm going to begin to land the plane here. But this is what we need to know a little bit about God's love. God's heart is settled for you. Now the issue is settling our heart in God's heart for us and how we might do that listen you can underestimate God's love we always do but you cannot overestimate it it's the bedrock of growth in the Christian life that God has forever settled his love for me that the Bible says in Romans 5 8 he's demonstrated this his love has been demonstrated to me in Christ Jesus that while I was a sinner he died for me so listen, the things that make about your life that make you wince to think of in shame or in embarrassment 
can become places where you can experience the depths of the love of Christ. You see, the problem about experiencing unconditional love is the moment you think you deserve it, it loses its impact. <laughs> That's why it's in the brokenness and sinfulness of our lives that we experience God's love. A, a lot, most of the time. That's because it's there that it makes no sense to us. And he's, he's there and he loves us. By experiencing God's love, we experience God's love when we, when we look to him and the Holy Spirit begins to pour out this love within our hearts. The Holy Spirit becomes a key component in experiencing God's love, as Romans 5, verse 5 tells us. But in the end, when I say experiencing God's love, I'm talking about what the old timers used to call affections. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book, Religious Affection. He didn't mean that negatively. He meant that positively in the sense of that in the revivals that were beginning to happen, Jonathan Edwards saw that one of the things that God did most consistently was stir people's affection for him. That's what I'm talking about when I say experience God's love. When's the last time that our affections have been stirred by God's love for us? And maybe if it hasn't been a while Maybe it's because we've refused to enter into some area of despair or to embrace some emptiness we've experienced. Instead, we just numb it. You may say, what about my mess? What I would say to you is your uh, awareness of your unworthiness of such love is precisely why you qualify to experience God's love. And that's what he says in Ephesians. It is precisely our messiness that Christ's love makes Christ's love so surprising, so startling, so arresting, and therefore so transforming. How am I doing? Everybody all right? All right, look, let me just kind of start to land the plane this way. There's some obstacles, I think, that um, affect us from experiencing God's love, that entering into despair, which we learn to cling to him in union, and through there have a fresh experience of his love. But I just want to name a couple things. One can be pain. If you're here and you're thinking, my life is a mess. My life disproves that Christ loves me. Well, I would just say to you, you're looking at the wrong life. <laughs> Your life may, you may think it disproves it. It doesn't. His life proves it. God demonstrated his love towards us, not that your life doesn't go with any bad things happening. He demonstrated his love for us that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. His, you're looking at the wrong life if you're looking at the messiness of your life. It's Christ's life that saves us. It's Christ's life that we find life, union, and love. It's, our suffering may shape us, but his suffering defines us. We have endured suffering involuntarily. He endured it voluntarily. Our pain is meant to push us to run to Christ, where he endured what we deserve so that we might experience afresh his love and goodness. The defining thing about your life is not your performance nor your holiness, but his embrace of you. And it's when we learn to reciprocate that embrace back that we'll find Christian growth going ever deeper. The second thing that can keep us from God is shame. Anybody else ever hear that voice that tells you you're completely unworthy, that you can't go there, you're broken, you're ruined? Let me just give you a simple response. Embrace the accusation. It's probably right. Whatever you're thinking about yourself, you probably, it's probably worse. So what I like to do when I experience the voice of shame is just look at it and say, you're probably right. But God. Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives almost a perfect um, balance of it. But he did. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were a part, you were by uh, nature a child of wrath. That you were just going with the ways of the world, right? You were in bondage to sin and death. That's what he does in Ephesians chapter 2. But God. Big but, right? But God, who is rich in love. Not but A.T. came to his senses. Not but you got your life together. Not but you listened to a CD. Not but you got some self-help. Not but you went to therapy. But God, who is rich in love for you. And then he lists almost 15 things that God has done to redeem us to himself. That's where we put our confidence and that's where we silence the voice of shame, not by trying to fight it. You see, the thing about shame is you can't outperform it. You can't outperform inward shame. It's got to be loved out. And it's meeting there with all, embrace the accusation, fine, probably right, but God loves me. But I stand before God with the righteousness of Christ because of Christ, but God has been faithful to me. And that begins to move us closer and get off the obstacle that hinders us from experiencing God's love. The third thing that can hinder us from God's love is fear. 
We can fear God. We can fear his unconditional love. We have many other fears that keep us from experiencing his love, but I just want to help you with what you do with fear. When you have fear that keeps you from it, fear of facing our despair, fear of feeling that emptiness, whatever it might be, one of the best practices I know is to invite Jesus into your fear and say, Jesus, look, I'm afraid. And I need you to come be for me when I can't be for myself right now and help me do what is courageous, noble, and true. Come and empower me by your grace where I'm weak. You see, if you're waiting to get over your fears to get to Jesus, then you're missing the very cure for the fear, which is Jesus. Not that our fears ever go away, but that we learn what to do with them, and they begin to lose their teeth in us. So in conclusion, we have these pedals that fuel our engine of growth, repentance and faith, that brings us to just a deeper clinging to Jesus, where he's enough for me. And in that deep clinging and union with Jesus, I experience his love and his embrace, which drives me forward in my Christian growth, which probably will lead to deeper than repentance. And up comes another thing of faith and confidence in Christ. And on and on the engine goes. But look, you can't do any of that without the Holy Spirit's help. I know all of you. No, I'm just joking. Uh, I know all of you and you can't do it. No, that's what I was going to say. We desperately need, in fact, the places where Paul gives the most clear definitions of what the Holy Spirit has come to do. It is to bring the life of Christ, which you know, implies the love of Christ, and poured out in our hearts so that we might be filled with the life and the love of Jesus Christ. And look, what the Holy Spirit does, would you just stand? Let's just go into that. Would you just stand? That helps me know I'm ending. <laughs> being filled with the love of, I mean, um, uh, yeah, being filled with the Spirit, experiencing um, this love being poured out by the Holy Spirit um, is important. But oftentimes, I don't know, you know, just living life, anybody just feel like, like sometimes you can't even find the Holy Spirit? Like, hey, where'd you go? Anybody? No? Okay. Well, sometimes it can feel that way. But one of the things that the Holy, there's two things the Holy Spirit wants to do, and then we're going to end with this. One of the things the Holy Spirit wants to do is actually incline our hearts to Jesus. And I just want to say that from my understanding, or at least from, remember this way, the more that I grow, which is not very much, but I'm trying to, the more beautiful Jesus gets. And I think part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to help us see Jesus as beautiful. And I use that word in purposeful because to think about beauty for a minute. When you look at two paintings and you find one painting more beautiful than the other, why did you do it? There's usually no rationale that you know of. There's just an inclination of the heart to something for itself. That's what beauty is, that longing, that inclination to something, and you don't quite know why. What the Holy Spirit does is he begins to make Jesus beautiful again to us, where there's an inclination of a heart to Jesus, but we can't quite put it all together. I can say how much he loves me. I can say what he's done for me. But when somebody says, why Jesus? You just say, who else? There's an inclination of my heart to him. He's beautiful. And I just want to tell you something, friends, especially in our day and age, on, on, in church life, in preaching, it's really easy to try to strip Jesus down to what he can do for you practically. But when you strip, when you strip everything down to utility, how can you utilize it? You will vandalize beauty. When you stare at a redwood forest and go, man, this could be more useful as a parking lot, strip beauty. Nobody stares at a Van Gogh and go, I wonder how this is going to make my life a little richer tomorrow. They're just lost in it. No one stares at a sunset and feels a need to justify how it's going to improve their life tomorrow. Beauty, you just, you lose yourself in it and you're not worried about the utility of it. You're worried about the wonder of it. And what I'm trying to say, we must be careful, especially in our preaching, we're not trying to strip Jesus down to all the ways he's practical. Just stand in awe of him. And as you stand in awe of him and his love for you, he will transform you as you look to him. The Holy Spirit wants to restore our beauty. But we leak sometimes, don't we? Look, the same people that were filled with the Spirit in Acts 2 were filled with the Spirit again in Acts 4. Same people. We leak. So this is what I want to do this morning. I just want to have a time, if you'd like to come up here, I want to just say, maybe you have an inclination to repent, that's fine. I just want to pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit in which He will make Jesus beautiful again or even deeper if He's that way to us than we've ever experienced. That he would come, and if we need to go into the depths of that despair and emptiness, he will, he will guide us through that with loving tenderness and bring us out to deeper union with Jesus and a deeper experience of his embrace. So we're going to 
uh, let's just do this. Just come now. We don't have time. I've went too long. If you'd like the, that, I'm going to ask you just to come right here, and we're going to do it. I promise you this. Nobody's going to stiff arm you, and, you know, I'm not, I, we're not praying to get a particular gift here. We're just praying to say, Lord Jesus, would you fill us again? And just take a step. Take an act, move, and just say, God, I need this. There's something I, I deeply desire here. Now just come. We're not going to go down the line and lay hands and pray for people individually. We're going to just pray together that God would fill us. Now listen, as we pray, I just want you all just to look at me for a moment and everybody else gets to hear this. This is what I'm asking. Don't put any expectations on this, okay? Don't say, Lord, I'm praying for this so it better be blank, right? I'm praying for feelings so it better be tongues or I'm praying for feelings. We're not going to do this. What we're going to do is say, Lord, I want you to purify my heart by faith. I want you to fill me with your spirit again and I want you to Make Jesus beautiful, even, even more so, or maybe beautiful again. That make that work for you? All right, so if you just, in whatever way you need to, to just receive, would you just receive? Jesus said, if any man's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of him will come rivers of living water. Luke eleven thirteen. 13, you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? So that's what we're doing. Lord Jesus, we ask you to come. Uh, I feel completely unworthy to even pray this prayer. But you are more excited to answer our prayer. Lord, would you fill us again with your spirit? Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you begin to just blow out all of the debris and, and, and that have just dammed up the flow of your river in us? Would you awaken our hearts again if there's repentance? Would you just bring it to mind in your gentleness? that needs to happen. Lord, where there's despair and emptiness we must enter, would you take us by the hand and guide us with loving care? But ultimately, Lord, will you make Jesus beautiful, even more so, even more deeply. Holy Spirit, come now and fill us. Thank you, Lord. just going to ask you guys here to just stay for a second. Prayer team, would you mind if you'd like to go to the back? Um, we're going to enter into worship. If you're here up front, we're going um, to close this moment of prayer. If you'd like more prayer, there'll be the prayer team in the back. But this is what I'm asking you to do, to turn your attention to Jesus and to just see what he does, especially now that we're going to enter into worship. So, Father, um, as we enter into worship, Holy Spirit, come help us make much of Jesus in a way that's worthy of him. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, our only hope. Amen. Amen.